Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Space Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. Uh, tonight, I'm delighted to have with me Dr. Alex Hirschaft, who is a Holocaust survivor and animal rights pioneer. And um, I think he's got some quite interesting things to talk to us about. And um, obviously, with the rise of veganism and um, the effects of climate change and the way that dietary um, considerations are changing, there's never a more timely reason, you know, time to actually think about this sort of subject. So, Dr. Alex, good evening to you. Good evening. It's great to be with you, Russell. Great. So tell me a little bit about yourself, Alex. Um, tell, me what, tell me your story. Right. Uh, well, my claim to fame is having been one of the few survivors of the Holocaust, more specifically the Warsaw Ghetto. Right. Uh, and uh, then uh, after spending five years in an Italian refugee camp, I came to the U.S. in uh, 1951. And uh, since then, I've just uh, gotten myself educated and in a good financial position. And uh, in the 70s, I became involved with the animal rights movement. And uh, I'm now one of the co-founders of the animal rights movement in the US. And I'm still doing it. I'm largely retired, but I'm still involved. Right. Wow. Well, you've given us plenty to unpick there, as it were. So should we start at the beginning? So how old were you at the um, when you were experiencing the Holocaust? So, where, where were you in your life? Yeah, I was five years old when right. the Nazi armies invaded uh, Poland and declared martial law. Yeah. And uh, soon after that, uh, all Jews in the greater Warsaw area uh, were ordered to move into the Jewish section of Warsaw. Yeah. Uh, and uh, shortly after that, the area was surrounded by a brick wall topped with barbed wire. And that became the infamous Warsaw Ghetto, which yeah. was one of Hitler's concentration camps, keeping Jews together in one place until the gas chambers could be built in nearby Treblinka. So it's unimaginable now, isn't it? And um, but how 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 did people? I mean, you talk about resilience, which is our subject, but how did people? get through is it 
existing or is it what 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 yes how does that's it work? a good verb that's basically yeah so uh existence was the operative term uh basically all the other uh functions normal functions that we think we're doing during the day uh, paled in comparison with that quest for existence we just kept telling ourselves uh, let's live one more day and maybe tomorrow it'll be all over maybe the allies will we knew the allies were coming it was just a question of when and uh, yeah so so there were some things that were people were basically foregoing the usual norms of etiquette in dealing with one another in in the quest for survival and uh, one of the manifestations of that is that you had jewish policemen who were cooperating in uh, roundups of uh, of other jews because they would get to live a little longer so did people actually give up as well? Well, you couldn't. If you gave up, you were dead, basically. And, but that's what I mean. Did people give up and die, in a sense? Yes. yes. There were, well, uh, dying was pretty easy because, uh, well, not easy in the sense of uh, uh, not suffering, but uh, it, there, were, there, there were no... There was no shortage of ways of dying. You could die of typhus, which was prevalent, uh, was a pandemic throughout the ghetto. And uh, you could also die of hunger because there was uh, always a shortage of food. So, mm. so people didn't die giving up. They died of the physical manifestations. But if you, if you didn't have, the, if you didn't have the, the drive or the need to live, Right. It was easy to succumb, I suppose. Is that, is that exactly. what you're saying? Yeah. Yes. So, so how's uh, this? Is a very crass question. I apologize almost for it, but how has that shaped the rest of your life? Well, one of the things that happened is I uh, became empathetic with uh, what uh, animals go through in uh, today's factory farms. Uh, this same concept of uh, living in abnormal conditions in uh, of uh, severe crowding and uh, never knowing uh, how long you're going to be able to live and then being killed finally uh, it it just allowed me to uh, empathize better with what animals go through right uh, and of course, that's a, it's a really interesting point. You are never put the two things together. But of course, as soon as you say it, it makes total sense, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So, so, so basically, you, you and this is a horrible, glib way of summarizing your life. You survived the Holocaust, you got educated, and then you, you got involved in the animal welfare movement. But is it, is, is it as simple as that? I mean, are there other steps on the way? Now, there were steps on the way. So I uh, became a vegetarian uh, in the uh, early 60s, but I kept it uh, pretty much as a private matter uh, because I didn't actually know any other vegetarians. And then in 1972, I was uh, working for a consulting firm in the Washington area. And uh, my specialty was hazardous waste management 
because by then I had my PhD in chemistry. So they sent me to a slaughterhouse in the Midwest to do an inventory of their wastewater problems. And uh, I was uh, walking around uh, taking notes. And then uh, all of a sudden I turned the corner and I was confronted by these piles of animal body parts, hearts, uh, lungs, hooves, heads. And uh, I, I recalled in horror, as most people would, and I immediately got flashbacks uh, from visiting Auschwitz and seeing the piles of human remains, you know, eyeglasses, hair, shoes, suitcases, and so forth. And, uh, and it, it occurred to me that uh, what uh, we are doing to animals may be similar to what the Nazis did to us. And the more I thought about it, the more I recognized the similarities. Uh, so for, for example, the herding of the victims, the housing in uh, wooden crates, the use of cattle cars to transport my people to the gas chambers, uh, the secrecy uh, behind the slaughterhouse and uh, uh, gas chamber walls. Uh, because they didn't want people to to revolt, obviously, yeah. and uh, the the use of uh, skin markings to identify the the victims, yeah. uh, and, and and even the humane concerns. Uh, I I I learned uh, recently by reading a, an excellent book on a subject called Eternal Treblinka. I learned that the commandants of uh, the different uh, extermination camps were arguing whether carbon monoxide or hydrogen cyanide were more humane ways of killing people. Uh, just as, as, as yeah. we uh, manifest concern for how pain, painlessly we kill animals. So, uh, so I was I was in a great state of consternation because uh, this you know I I I, I love this country I was a recent immigrant and uh, I had finally uh, gotten to a stage where I was financially independent and I had gotten my education I was ready to begin my career here and here I I was in a country that was doing despicable things to sentient beings. And I was all alone. I couldn't share my concerns with anyone because I didn't know anyone. And I was afraid to, to just talk to, about it to strangers because uh, I thought I might get committed. Uh, and then I came across the writing of Isaac Bershevis Singer and particularly one of his character's quotes which said that for the animals, all men are Nazis. And for the animals, life is an eternal Treblinka, again, referring to the gas chambers near Warsaw. And then I realized that at least one other person shared uh, my concerns, my fears, and no less than a Nobel laureate in literature. So then, uh, 
so then, uh, you know, I, I felt a little better, but uh, I had uh, what's sometimes referred to as survivor's guilt. Yeah. Uh, the question was, you know, why was I spared when so many other good people, including uh, most of my family, were killed and how can I repay the debt? And is there a lesson that we can draw from this terrible tragedy that had befallen my people? And, uh, and those questions remained unanswered for several years until 1975, I happened to attend the World Vegetarian Congress in Maine in the United States. First mm -hmm. time it was ever held in the United States. And I found myself uh, in the midst of uh, 1,500 other vegetarians wow. was uh, from all countries, all walks of life, all economic stations, all kinds of dress, ages. And the only thing they had in common was they were all vegetarians like yeah. me. I finally felt that I had found my people, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, I it was a life-changing experience. That's when I decided to spend the rest of my life fighting all oppression, beginning with the oppression of animals for food. Yes. And yes. that basically provided the answers to my questions of how I can repay the debt and what lessons can be drawn from the Holocaust. Yes, I mean, technically the most vulnerable creatures, aren't they? So, so, um, so, so you've approached this from a point of conditions, as it were, but what, what, what is the case for not eating meat? I mean, I mean, I get it, uh, but what is the case for not eating meat? Because, you know, certain parts of the States would be very surprised at the idea that there are any, there are vegetables, never mind things that aren't meat, <laughs> are they? Um, well, of course, they consider potatoes to be vegetables, I suppose, but... Um, it is fascinating America is at one end part one side of the country it's very extremely liberated in terms of food and there's you know massive vegan movements and in the middle bit's all cows and cow so in your mind what's the case for not eating meat is there other other than the the sort of condition for animals well that's uh, it, it sort of depends on the person for me that was the, the definitive uh, uh, factor uh, but uh, for example recently uh, there was a conference concluded in glasgow scotland uh, the so called cop26 which dealt with the environment and we had a team from my organization out there basically explaining that uh, eating animals kills our planet because yeah. of the environmental impacts, particularly the emission of methane from uh, cattle and other ruminants, but also uh, tremendous water pollution and uh, air pollution and uh, devastation of forests and other wildlife habitats uh, uh, depletion of soil and on and on. I mean, <laughs> I cannot think, I mean, we usually think of pollution as stuff coming out of the stacks, uh, as industry basically being responsible, and it is. But in, to a large extent, it's uh, animal agriculture as well. Yeah. And then, of course, the, to, to most people, the most convincing argument is the health one. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, been pretty well determined that uh, consumption of meat uh, increases 
greatly the risk of uh, the killer diseases, heart disease, cancer, stroke, uh, obesity, and uh, uh, yeah. So um, I, I see behind you is a big, uh, obviously people, other people can't see because we're just a podcast, but uh, people can see um, a big brochure with the word, are you still eating animals? And a website, meetout, M-E-A-T, out.org. Is that, is that a place where you can find out more about this? Yes, that's one of our, uh, that's one of our annual events. It takes place on March 20th, the first day of spring. And uh, that, that goes back uh, quite a ways. I guess we started that in 1985. Uh, and basically the idea is to ask people to go at least one day without meat, just mm. as, a, as a start. Of course, nowadays that doesn't sound very ambitious, but in 1985, <laughs> yes, that yes. was, there was Quite a, something. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because actually the zeitgeist, of course, is towards veganism and vegetarianism and, and such like. You must be you must be feeling um, that you Vindicated. have friends around you. Yes. <laughs> like you can raise, you know, you can go out in public now and actually ask for a, some broccoli or something without being lynched. That's right. That's right. And yeah, you can go to a restaurant and mention the word vegan, and uh, you won't get a stare. Yeah. Yeah. And where do you see where do you see this movement going? Because a lot of, because of course, often a successful protest movement can stall or reach the stage where it attracts so much attention that you know, the traditional forces line up against it. Do you, do you, do you think this is here? It, well, it's, being here to stay is not much of, an, is not much of a, an ambition. Do you, do you see veganism and such like actually making a big difference? Yes. Uh, uh, actually, uh, so you mentioned opposition. Uh, we're... We're a strange movement in, in several ways. For one, uh, the, the people who are the activists uh, are not the victims, and the victims yes. are not the activists. That's true. So, uh, and that's unique. There is no other movement like this. Uh, and then the, the other thing that's kind of strange is we don't have any opposition. <laughs> nobody. <laughs> There's nobody. Nobody who doesn't like us because we, we, we don't conflict with anyone else's interests, really. Uh, you could say the meat industry, but the meat industry recognizes that, uh, that uh, animal agriculture has no future because of the intense uh, uh, downside for the environment and for public health. Mm. So they are totally in, in, in sync. They're totally aligned with the concept of uh, plant-based uh, meat and dairy products. And uh, they, they, uh, every major meat company is now invested in production of plant-based uh, meat and dairy products. Yes. Yes. And it's... So... You do, so, you, do, you do get a slight pushback from the plant-based population, though, don't they? Because actually we, we're now intensively farming plants, I suppose. It's, it, it, it's a strange, strange argument, but I, I mean, is there anything in it? You know, is the, should we be eating fewer plants as well? I mean, it's starting to get bizarre. You know, we hear some of the counter-arguments, don't they? You must hear no. many. 
Right. You can't, you can't eat lettuces because they scream too, is one of the things I heard recently. It's quite bizarre. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, I won't bother responding to that part. No. As far as, as, far as uh, extent of cultivation, we'll actually be uh, cultivating fewer plants because of the tremendous waste in uh, feeding plants to animals so we can eat the animals. You know, it's usually uh, like a 10 to 1 or 20 to 1 ratio. So if we switch to plant-based foods, we'll actually be cultivating fewer plants. Yeah. Or as we like to put it, uh, even if we cultivate the same amount of plants, we will be able to feed more people. Yes. And do you see, and do you see that this is almost a generational thing, that each, as each generation sort of succeeds each other, that this 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 cause will become the normal thing because i'm guessing you're dealing with quite entrenched attitudes in some parts of the world about the nature of um, dietary preferences yes uh, yes there is the generational factor the Mm -hmm. uh, new generations are more open-minded they're more concerned with the health and environment There are sort of two aspects um, answering an earlier question of yours about the future. Uh, There are are two parts really to the future of the movement. So there is, uh, so if you you ask a person to embrace animal rights, uh, they say, well, sure, yeah, I love my dog and I love the animals in the zoos, animals are cute. And uh, yeah, I remember when I was a child, my first toys were animal toys. My first stories were stories about animals. I'm very fond of animals. And, and we say, well, then you're for animal rights. And say, yeah, of course. And then we say, well, but you know, it involves a change of lifestyle three times a day. And then they say, oops, well, n- never mind. <laughs> so, so uh, bringing on plant-based foods in large uh, quantities and at the price and taste that is acceptable to consumers, uh, that will of course do away with the huge obstacle of having uh, of asking people to change their lifestyle. But then, so that and that's not being done by us. That's done by a number of investors, as I mentioned, including the meat industry, right. and and they're doing very well with that. So the question is, do we still have a role as a movement? Well, I, I like to think yes, because we still have, uh, we still are the the folks with the ideology. Yes. So once once we stop eating animals, there's still the question of uh, do animals have certain rights or do we have certain obligations towards animals? What does veganism mean? Is it just not eating animals? We claim no. Veganism is a lot more than that. It's not a diet, it's a lifestyle. It means harmlessness. It means uh, not harming any sentient beings. So there is there's still a, a lot of education for yes, us yes. to do. And given man's natural hostility to anything that's weaker than itself, uh, including itself as a, as a species, as you would know yourself, that I mean, there's a, that's a big that's a big um, that's a big leap to make, isn't it? Yes. 
Okay, but are you positive, optimistic about the future? Does your does your background reinforce this idea that you have to exist, but you also have to keep pushing? I mean, how, how do you link these things together? Yeah, I think that the, where existence is becomes your primary drive, that's a horrible way to live, yeah. uh, especially for human beings who have uh, an imagination and who know the implications of our actions. Uh, yeah, the, I, I think, uh, you know, a question comes up, the, does life have meaning? And uh, my answer is, yeah, the meaning of life is to be able to make things better for, for all sentient beings, including yes. humans and animals. Yeah, it's, and it's, you know, it, it, would, it would seem to be obvious, and yet so many people seem to disagree. <laughs> Especially those in power who want to hang on to it, I guess. <laughs> well, in, in some perverted way, they're probably thinking that they're improving lives for people. Yes, um, that, well, all dictators think they're benevolent, don't they? That's the whole point of it. Um, Alex, so tell us, tell us how we can find out more about your work. Uh, sure. Well, the, the, my organization is called the Farm Animal Rights Movement, and the website is farmusa.org. Right. Farmusa.org. Yeah. Uh, my personal website is alexhershaft.com. Yeah. Alexhershaft.com. And uh, that should be enough to get started. Yeah. I also I also uh, do a bi-weekly blog that uh, reflects on the animal rights movement and uh, on our attitudes towards animals. And uh, that is called theveganblog.org. Theveganblog.org. Oh, brilliant. Well, I mean, it's a... Uh... I think I think this will be um, it's one of those causes which will inevitably be not a cause soon, as you say, it'll be it'll be um, the zeitgeist. I think that's absolutely brilliant. Doing fantastic work. And thank you for spending time with us tonight. It's been absolutely fascinating. Sorry, I haven't asked many questions because I've just been so fascinated by what you said. So uh, thank you for spending time with us tonight. My pleasure, Russell. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. No problem. You take care. Hi, everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed, and if you are in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com, then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.